0: I'm Cullen Burke, and this is Cauldron, a history of the world battle by battle. Thanks for listening to Cauldron, a history of the world, battle by battle. I'm your host, Cullen, and today we are going to take on the Huns and the Battle of Chalons, or the Catalonian Fields, in 451 CE. But first, some housekeeping. I'm really excited for next week's TheoryCast. I was able to get in touch with author Simon McDowell, who wrote the fantastic Catalonian Fields, A.D. 451, Rome's Last Great Battle which I used as one of my main sources. The Osprey series on warfare is excellent, and this book in particular was riddled with maps, illustrations, and great photos that really helped me to kind of access the time and the place of the battle. So keep your ears open for that, and also don't forget to send in your thoughts. Your involvement will make this whole thing work, so just go to cauldronpodcast.com, and click on the Your Theories page to submit. As always, please rate and review us on iTunes. It helps get us a little higher on the list. And ideally, that'll get us more people listening and participating, eventually creating a wonderfully bubbling cauldron of ideas, thoughts, and theories. So check out the Patreon as well. There's some, sh- there's some really cool show gear and bonus content. Eventually, I'd like to do a, uh, a letter reading series where um, uh, from various wars in history I read letters between people at the home front and the front lines. Um, Just a quick show note, moving forward, we're going to tie the battles and their historical dates as closely to the release dates of the episode. So be ready to really jump around on the timeline, and if you want to see what we have coming up next, Go to cauldronpodcast.com and click on the current campaign page. So, let's get stuck in with Attila the Hun, Atius of Rome, and the Battle of the Catalonian Fields. I've always loved a good nickname. But I've always wondered how people get them. What, what do you have to do to get a good nickname? History is littered with nicknames that range from the funny to the terrifying, uh, the, the awesome to the downright odd. You've got uh, Irishman Ulick of the Heads came by his name in a fairly obvious fashion, collecting the heads of his fallen foes. It's unclear how Einstein the Fart came about his, but the lesson there is probably something along the lines of, uh, of become friends with the, uh, the, the people that tell your story. Uh, Vlad's son shared his father's tastes and was known as the Little Impaler. Louis XVIII was there to replace Napoleon a couple of times and was generally around to annoy the English, earning him the very passive-aggressive title of the unavoidable. The badass Georgia-born Eugene Bullard would go on to be a jazz drummer, a boxer, a club owner, an allied spy in World War II, and upon his return to the U.S., a civil rights activist, but he earned his nickname, the Black Swallow of Death, in the air over the Western Front. A good nickname can even tell a story. The Roman general and power broker Flavius Aetius has been labeled the last of the Romans, and one can almost imagine him running around in his toga, trying and for a time succeeding in putting out the brush fires of decay as the Western Roman Empire crumbled and collapsed around him. Nicknames can also evoke emotions and memories. Uh, the, The word vandal comes from a tribe that sacked Roman cities and wreaked such destruction upon Rome that to this day the word vandal means a person who deliberately destroys or damages public or private property. Which brings us to the word which would be used as a nickname for inspiring fear and hatred. During the First World War, a few British propagandists, while trying to whip up the home front and create a sense of dread for the German army, settled on a term everyone in Europe would instantly recognize, even though it had been 1,500 years since this particular group had terrorized the continent. The Hun was what most of Great Britain and her fighting men would call the Germans throughout the war. And finally, in what has to be the best example of how powerful and effective a nickname can be, we come to the warrior king, the most barbarous, mean, evil, and cruel horse lord ever to invade Europe proper from the east. Attila, the Scourge of God. Sir Edward Creasy, through original sources, recounts the tale of how willingly Attila took to his nickname. Attila had designated himself Attila, descendant of the great Nimrod, nurtured in Ingadi, by the grace of God, king of the Huns, Goths, Danes, and Medes, the dread of the world. Pretty intimidating stuff on its own. Though it seems like a lot to remember, I'm sure very few, if any, addressing Attila ever got that wrong. Apparently, while retreating from the city of Orleans, right before the Battle of the Catalonian Fields, a Christian monk is reported to have spoken with Attila and said, Thou art the scourge of God for the chastisement of Christians, Attila liked the sound of that and immediately took it as, as his preferred title. Now think about that though, about the meaning of that. The terrified peasants were so insane with fear, and rightfully so, that they actually believed the Huns were sent by God to punish them for their sins, that by being bad Christians, they were basically asking for it. The Huns, in their minds, were no different than the plagues and disasters sent by the tempestuous and vengeful God of the Old Testament. The Huns were to be endured and and suffered and hopefully survived. Before we get to the battle, let's take a quick look at who the Huns were, where they came from, and what made them so implacable in battle and hated in history. There's little known about what, where the Huns came from and what information is out there is for the most part highly disputed. But it's safe to say that this group of nomads were probably pushed off their land and forced in a massive migration to move east. And they arrived in Central Europe around 350 C. With only three words left of the Hun language, trying to use this as a way to find more details about Hun origins has proven to be impossible. But it does seem as though there's some common ground with Turkish, Mongolian, Iranian, Slavic, and Gothic. As they moved east, the Huns would absorb or push the existing communities before them, taking on little pieces of each cultural group they came into contact with. Having no true infrastructure and really no need for one, hun life on the steppe was very similar to the Native Americans who who would have been using the land and its bounty in much the same way. Typically, traveling and living in small bands of 500 to 1,000, these groups would keep a good distance between each other to ensure food supply and keep potential issues and infighting to a minimum. However, thanks to their speedy steeds, these bands could be quickly mobilized and formed into their military organization of tens, hundreds, thousands, and tens of thousands. Early in the 5th century, the Huns arrived in Pannonia, in the land we now know as Hungary. With its proximity to both Roman empires, word of these strange, hideous, monstrous people from the east spread quickly throughout the Mediterranean world. For some of you out there, this reference makes no sense, and so I'll put an image up in the map room for you, but I think the best way to imagine a Hun warrior is to picture Charles Bronson in The Great Escape, tan and weathered with Asiatic, intelligent eyes that have a way of giving away nothing of their owner's mind but seem to take in everything they fell upon with hair that would have in in most cases been jet black and slick with grime, almost as if the Huns were oozing oil from their very pores. Short, sinewy, and strong, the Huns would have had bodies that were basically made to take and deliver violence. When the Huns first appeared in Europe, they would have been dressed in ratty, filthy animal skins that they would wear until the rags rotted off, and if you add the smell of each rider's eight to ten horses, a Hun clan must have created a stench almost as fearsome and as offensive as the warriors themselves. The Huns also practiced ritual scarification in the form of the blood tears. When a warrior died, instead of crying or showing emotion, the mourners would slice the skin under their eyes and ride silently around the slain warrior's yurt, all the while bleeding down their faces. They also had the bizarre practice of cranial deformation, which is when, uh, much like the practice of foot binding in in China, at a young age, a child's head is wrapped into a cone-like formation. And slowly, over time, the pressure of the binding wraps the skull into the shape of the mold, giving the person a literal cone head. The Romans and Gauls would have been utterly and completely perplexed by the Hun appearance, and felt serious, nerve-melting, bowel-moving terror on a level we would be hard-pressed to understand when fighting the Huns for the first time. Using a highly orchestrated chaos that would have seemed like complete disarray to the Europeans, the Huns were actually executing a series of perfectly timed maneuvers with the precision and experience that could only be had by spending a lifetime on horseback. The Huns would form in these respective warbands and charge at the enemy infantry, and once in effective range at about 150 meters, they would start to fire their arrows, sometimes getting three or even four off before reaching a certain point, at which they would, they would whirl left or right, maybe getting off as many as two arrows during that maneuver, and then they would turn back towards the, uh, towards the rear of their group and they would ride backwards, and, and they would fire a few arrows from that position, turning their whole upper body around and loosing what's known as the Parthian shot. This unheard of rate of fire could bring seven, maybe eight arrows down accurately in seconds from each rider, and with some aiming high to force the infantry to put their shields up and others firing straight on into the gaps in the shield wall, When concentrated on narrow sections of the enemy line, this helter-skelter fire-and-move tactic had the equivalent effect of an early Mike Tyson left. It ended the fight brutally fast. The Huns achieved such overwhelming firepower by holding five to six arrows in the bow hand and by being experts with the impressively powerful and deadly composite bow, which had good range and could be handled while at a full gallop. Once the enemy line wavered and broke, the Huns had no issues with getting their hands dirty and would smash into the now crumbling infantry, dismount, and fight like wounded animals. They typically used long, straight, double-edged swords, but since most of their metal weapons were obtained through raiding or barter, they usually had a bit of a hodgepodge in terms of blade types. Weapons and tenacity were important for the warrior, but that goes without saying. What made a Hun army the most hated of its day were the cute, fuzzy little step ponies that each Hun warrior prized over most humans they met. These stout but nimble horses had many traits that mirrored the riders, not just physical stature, but their durability, their ability to be trained easily and quickly. They were able to uh, bear wounds very well, and most importantly, given where they came from, they had an uncanny ability to withstand the elements. By far, their most important attribute, when you consider the nomadic raiding lifestyle, would have been the little pony's ability to fend for itself, seemingly untouched by deprivation, and for the most part, being able to find its own food and water. Probably the greatest testament to the usefulness of these animals is that a strain of that hardy breed not only exists today, but is just as important to the people of the modern uh, step as it was to Attila and his warbear. Now, how could an uncivilized group of steppe wanderers come to power and prominence in Europe while the Roman Empire still existed? What needs to be understood is that though it existed in name, the Roman Empire at this point in time was completely different from the Roman Empire of Caesar Augustus. Over the centuries, Rome had begun to decline due to a number of reasons uh, ranging from poor leadership, inflation, civil wars, to barbarian invasion and and mass migrations, these last two being a direct result of Hun activity in the East. The Roman Empire was split when it became apparent that the empire had grown too large to govern effectively. And then Constantine the Great, recognizing that Rome was no longer the most important city in the empire, "'transferred the capital to Byzantium in 330 CE. "'As the Huns pressed and pressed the tribes of Eastern Europe, "'they in turn put immense pressure on the Roman borders, "'and gaps began to appear, "'through which poured the so-called barbarian horde. "'The Eastern Roman Empire being closer "'and more obviously cash-rich,' suffered the first real blows, and in 378 CE, the Roman world was shocked to learn that the Goths had not only routed a Roman field army, but they had killed the emperor as well. Add to that the sack of Roman 410 by Alaric and his Visigoths, and it became clear that a power shift was occurring. The main issue was an insufficient number of troops to cover the Roman border properly. So, as a compromise, Rome began making deals with the migrants and invaders from the east. Rome trained and armed them and employed the various tribes as legionaries on the very borders that they had just come across. This helped in the immediate by bolstering the armies available to Rome and keeping them viable as fighting forces. But in the long run, this kind of outsourcing would effectively end Roman military superiority. One of the other ways that Roman generals were able to deal with the dwindling number of fighting men was through what we would now call a defense-in-depth strategy. In fact, as this method of fighting developed from this point on, it would become the most dominant form of warfare in the Western world for the next almost 1,500 years. What the defense-in-depth concept boiled down to was simple. Focus on fortifying and protecting centers of population, religion, and industry, as opposed to borders that, for the most part, were fairly arbitrary. And once a borderline was pierced, it, it allowed the invader free reign over the territory immediately behind it. Centralizing your resources helped conserve them, and had the added benefit of forcing your opponent into making a choice. Run rampant and destroy the countryside depriving both sides of resources, but making a siege impossible or besiege the stronghold and risk defeat by disease, desertion, and possibly an enemy field army coming to the rescue. That last bit is the key to a successful defense in depth. The invader was naturally extending their lines of communication and supply, and the innate fear of being cut off by a roaming field army forced commanders to make hasty and often fateful decisions. Given Gaul's size, time to muster and collect an army often meant relying on the defense-in-depth method. And one of the great examples of this is given to us at the Catalonian Fields, where Flavius Aetius, through skill, ability, and luck, was able to hastily gather an army to fend off Attila's hunts. The last of the Romans was born Flavius Aetius in 391 C.E., somewhere in the Lower Danube region, to a father that was a powerful military leader in the Western Roman world and held the title of Master of Cavalry. As a child, Atius was given as a hostage to various tribes, which sounds worse than it was. In, in most cases, if the duration of stay was long enough and the hostage young enough, they would often bond deeply with their host nations, and it appears as though that's exactly what happened when Atius became a hostage of the Huns. From them, he would receive most of his training in war and politics, as well as a deep understanding for the Hun people. It's even believed uh, that during this period, Aetius and Attila became close personal friends, which would explain why Aetius had access to Hun warriors in most of his early campaigns. It's during these campaigns that Aetius showed his military ability and political acumen, using fighting, bribery, and blackmail to varying degrees, in order to secure for himself the title Magister Militum, arguably the most powerful position in the empire, second only to maybe the emperor himself. Along with the new position came the real prize, the province of Gaul, with its wealth, Roman infrastructure, and sizable population. Atius would govern Gaul like his own personal kingdom for the next 20 years, fighting wars against Vandals, Visigoths, Burgundians, bandits, Goths, and any other enemy, keeping all the various groups in check. Of his friend Attila's childhood, little is really known. Described as having a large head and small eyes, and with a flat nose and his typical stout squat Hun body covered in tattoos, the only thing that set Attila apart was his lack for the Hun appetite for gold. His weapons, horse, home, and person were all really without adornment, and he even would use a simple wooden cup for drinking. This kind of affectation would have kept him in stark contrast to his men, who covered themselves in the booty and gold of their conquests. Attila displayed a shrewd, aggressive mind, both in military matters and in politics. He and his brother, Bleda, became joint rulers of the Hun Horde in 434 CE and proceeded to campaign deep into the Balkans. After throwing their weight around and sacking a number of settlements and cities, the Eastern Roman Empire sued for peace and so began a decade and a half of extortion on a grand scale. Byzantium would forfeit some territory or accept certain one-sided trade agreements and then have to pay huge amounts of gold to the Huns. By the end of the decade, Attila would have his brother murdered, making him the sole power in the Hun world. And he smacked around the Eastern Roman Empire so viciously that they would find themselves paying the Huns a massive 6,000 pounds in gold annually. That massive chunk of change was too much. And in 450, the new emperor Martian refused to pay, knowing that A... The countryside had been picked clean and decimated over the last decade by regular invasions, rendering it impossible for a large army to survive off of. And B, he knew, even should Attila attack and make it to Byzantium, his lack of proper siege equipment and training would make it impossible to take the city's legendarily strong walls. Martian wasn't the only one that had puzzled out these facts, and Attila knew he had to look elsewhere if he wanted to maintain the status quo and keep his people content. Luckily for Attila, the years of attacking the East and the relatively healthy relationship with the Western Roman Empire meant that Gaul and Italy were ripe and ready to be plucked. Attila made it illegal for Huns to serve the Romans instantly depriving Aetius of his primary source of men, and forcing him to scramble to put together an army. It's at this point that a little brother's sister bickering caused a hell of a lot of trouble. Because while Attila was waiting for the right time to attack, he received a letter from the Western Roman Emperor Valentinian III's Sister Honoria. In the letter, she was pleading for Attila's help and intervention. Her affair had been discovered, her lover put to death, and to pay for her indiscretion, Honoria was to be married off to some old, dull senator. In a panicked Hail Mary attempt, Honoria sent Attila the letter asking for help, but also she sent a ring, which may or may have meant nothing. But clever Attila saw opportunity and took advantage of the poor girl's attempts at salvation. He declared the letter a proposal of marriage, and as his dowry, he wanted half the Western Roman Empire. Valentinian refused and attempted to smooth things over, but the damage was done, and the Huns were going to war. In 451, Attila's horde crossed the Rhine River. Attila needed to accomplish the destruction or capture of most major cities in Northern Gaul, thereby rendering it worthless to continue to fight over or so destabilizing the region that Rome's allies would disappear and he had to do it quickly. Meanwhile, Aetius had to somehow get an army thrown together and hightail it north to find and smash the Huns in the field, knowing that the longer the Huns roamed and ravaged, the harder it would be for him to keep his own army and his own men supplied. In true Western fashion, Atheists needed to come to grips with the enemy army itself, not to maneuver around and play hide-and-seek until one side either went home or wanted to make a deal. After capturing Metz, it's hard to piece together exactly what happened, but the Huns apparently captured a number of large towns and cities, such as Riem and Strasbourg. We just talked about the Hun and their lack of expertise and experience with siege warfare, But it appears the ever-resourceful Huns adapted and used disgruntled Romans or Greeks with knowledge of the techniques of siegecraft. That being said, their best siege tactic was still simple fear. And so in most cases, Huns would ride up to a city's walls and demand entrance for lodging, supplies, and some amount of treasure. If the city obliged, they would usually keep their word and treat the people humanely, knowing they might have to come back at some point. If, however, the city denied them access, the Huns would make it a ghost town, which had the dual effect of adding to their supplies and loot, as well as sending a message to the next town that they would request to enter. Dozens of cities fell in modern-day Germany and France to the Hun army, but some were strangely spared. Paris, according to legend, was bypassed when St. Genevieve, a young peasant girl in the vein of Joan of Arc, used her prayers and leadership to rally the people and fortify the city. Whether this was divine intervention or not, I can't say, but I think Attila was keeping a close watch on his timetables, and instead of investing potentially time-consuming cities, he had to move on to the next one. Attila's speed and reach is extremely impressive given the communications and travel issues of the time. This proves that Attila was an excellent strategist and he planned extremely well. From the crossing of the Rhine to the siege of Orleans, only two months had transpired. In southern France, Aetius had been able to cobble together an alliance of Romans and Visigoths, which is impressive given the decades of uneasy peace and at times outright war between them and Rome. Having settled in southern France, the Visigoths were a powerful Germanic kingdom. Not wanting the Huns to take too much power in Gaul, the Visigoths deemed it prudent to join up with Aetius' Romans and move north to Orleans, where they were supposed to meet up with the large band of Alans at Orleans. What happened at Orleans is fuzzy. It's possible that the defense in depth worked, and while besieging the city, the Huns got wind of a large Roman force coming from behind them, and so the Huns withdrew. It's also very possible that the Romans got there first, reinforced the city, and presented a very tough nut for Attila to crack, who then decided to turn and leave. At any rate, Orleans stays in Roman hands, and Attila moves back towards the Rhine. As with most battles up until fairly recently, nailing down exact details is tough, and where numbers of men are involved, things get pretty dicey. Jordanes has the Hun army at 500,000, which is obviously impossible. Logistics rule that number out instantly, but to drive it home, each Hun warrior had seven to ten mounts requiring significant grazing land, and nowhere in the line of the campaign was there enough open grassland for an army of 500,000. Probably one of the main reasons Attila divided his army in the first place was to ensure ample horse grazing for whatever Hun troops he had. Yes, 500,000 Huns raping Gaul is dramatic, but very unlikely. In fact, the Hun element of Attila's army was probably only medium-sized to begin with when you factor in the need to leave a strong enough force in Pannonia to defend the Hun homeland. It's possible that Aetius was able to scramble enough men together to maybe even outnumber the barbarians. The Visigoths, under the, their king Theodric, were bringing ten to 15,000 men, who were solid horsemen and, when dismounted, fought well as infantry. The Alans, under the possibly duplicitous Sanjiban, were somewhere around 5,000 strong, mostly made up of horse archers. Aetius rounded out his army with a polyglot force of Italians, Franks, Burgundians, and anything else he could pull together, Numbering somewhere in the 15 to 25,000 range. On the high end, this means the Romans had about 30 to 45,000 in the field. Attila had about 5 to 10,000 Ostrogoths, 10 to 15,000 true Hun horse warriors, and a mix of Gepids and other tribes, some 8 to 10,000 strong, putting his army at around 22 to 25,000 all the way up to possibly 35,000. Another thing that's hard to nail down with ancient battles is where exactly they happened. In Simon McDowell's book, he lays out his research and makes a great argument for the Catalonian fields, and that's what I'm going to go by. I seriously suggest you guys pick that book up and read about it. It's so cool to think about traveling there and trying to find the exact spot where these great events occurred. So uh, imagine a fairly large plain of grass, a straight north-south road which is bisected about halfway down by an east-west road cutting the battlefield into quarters. In the top left quarter is a wooded area that thins into the plain, and in the southwest section is a gradually rolling hill with some wooded area leading down to the grassy plain. The decline or the descent of that hill is very gradual, almost to the point where it, it kind of flattens out. Uh, in both the north and east, the area is flat uh, flat and grassy plain, and, and the southeast is also grassy plain. That's perfect for cavalry action. Drawing up his line in a strong defensive formation, Atius has his vis- visigoths on his right wing, straddling that slight gradual uh, hill area. His force of Alans were placed in the center of the line, Aetius possibly believing that they would need to be watched carefully and intimidated into holding the line. And finally, his Roman force was on the far left, anchored by the outcropping of woodland in the northern part of the field. Attila's Ostrogoths on the opposite side were on his left, facing off against the distant cousins of the Visigoth, and these two would fight for supremacy over that slight rise. Attila lined up his Huns, the most effective and feared force on the field, in the center of his line directly across from the much weaker Alans, clearly hoping to break the enemy line in the center, outflank it from the inside out like an inverse canai. On his far right, Attila placed the Gepids and varied tribes more as a holding force than anything else with the objective of keeping the Romans occupied. The two lines meet, and on the little hill to the Roman right, a fight begins that would see the Visigoths victorious, but remain in position almost hidden and out of sight. With nothing but open land to their rear, the Huns had ample room to maneuver and prepare to attack the islands in the center of the Roman line. Lining up several rows deep so as to throw successive waves at their enemy, The Huns kept a steady rain of arrows falling upon their enemies that must have seemed to last forever. The mental toll that a steady diet of fear and Hun arrows would have taken on these troops is hard to wrap your mind around. The infantry up and down the line at this point was just trying to survive, weather the storm, and must have been so incredibly frustrated seeing but not being able to strike the enemy. The Allans, being mostly mounted, were able to come to grips with the Huns and, in fact, fought in a fairly similar fashion, which created a whirlwind elastic action in the center of the line. This muddled the center, forcing the Huns to stretch their line deeper and deeper into the center, feeding more Hun troops into the middle. And so long as the Allans didn't crack, the Roman line would survive. Unfortunately for the Roman coalition, Around late afternoon, the hard-pressed Alans finally broke and began to flee west along that main road, effectively splitting the Roman line into two sections with dangerously exposed flanks in the center of the fighting. The Hun plan to break the center and then turn outwards and cut into the Roman flanks begins to work, and the Roman and Visigoth forces are completely exposed. Theodric, the king of the Visigoths, recognizes the danger to his army, senses that his men are about to waver. To stop the inevitable collapse, he rides Braveheart-style up and down the line to rally his men and give them heart. While urging his men to stay strong and hold the line, King Theodric is thrown from his horse and either trampled by his own men or speared by an enemy Ostrogoth. What follows is an incredibly dangerous moment for the Romans. In all likelihood, their Visigoth allies would break, but ever the planner, Aetius had squirreled away a, a strong cavalry reserve in the woods behind the main battle line, and he chose this moment to send them in to cap off the Huns' success in the center. The Roman cavalry, now fighting a tired, weaker Hun force, was strong. The exhausted Huns began to falter, and the battle line starts to stabilize, At this moment, Thorismund, the son of Theodric and the new king of the Visigoths, in command of those troops on the hill to the Roman right, drives his enraged and vengeance-seeking men down upon the left flank of the Hun army, crashing into and crushing the enemy as they go. While all the exciting stuff is happening in the center and on the right end of the Roman line, The Roman left holds fast against the hard-fighting Gepids and is able to keep its position. Instead of rolling up and being totally destroyed, the Hun army is able to keep formation as it falls back and by night has begun the process of withdrawal. Through a system of fire and move, the Hun forces are able to make it back to their camp or wagon crawl, a form of uh, field fortification. Both sides make camp for the night having lost a large amount of men for the time probably between 5 and 10,000 each. Also, both armies must have been exhausted beyond modern understanding of what that word even means. In the wake of this long and bloody battle, it became quickly apparent that not much was really accomplished. Attila returned home with less men and material, but was not pursued or destroyed, which is believed, actually, to have been a very shrewd play by Aetius. Knowing the Visigoths had actually won the day, he urged their new king to return home to press his rights as king, and in so doing got rid of a potential ally turned enemy threat. By not chasing down and destroying the Huns, he also kept them on the board, though much weakened, as a possible insurance against another enemy. This careful balancing act by Aetius kept any one barbarian force from becoming too powerful. And as big a defeat to the Huns as this was, it was more of a pride defeat because it didn't stop Attila from invading Italy the next year. Recognizing the need to throw his power around and remind the world of his strength, Attila decimated portions of northern Italy to the point that it would take decades, sometimes centuries, for them to regain their original strength and, and their numbers. At the siege of Aquila, or Aquila, in 452, the Huns utterly destroyed the city, which forced fugitives of the surrounding area and the city itself to take refuge in the Adriatic swamps. This group of survivors realized that nowhere was safe if Attila and his horse warriors could reach it and so they decided to put their city out of reach of horses once and for all, and so proceeded to found the great city-state of Venice. While Attila was running rampant in northern Italy, Valentinian kept Aetius sidelined, and what was probably a jealous fit killed his best general with his own hands. For this childish outburst, Valentinian himself would eventually be killed by a couple of loyal men of Atius. At the same time, Attila is actually turned away from further advancement into Italy by Pope Leo, who convinced him that a mixture of disease and pestilence and God himself would be all that he would gain from further conquest in Italy. This helped to build the mystery and power of the Church, proving that the Pope was afraid of no man and could dictate God's will to even the most ravenous warlord. Attila returning back to his capital in Pannonia, decided to get married, and married a Gothic woman named Edilco, and had one hell of a wedding night, apparently. The story goes that while celebrating his nuptials, Attila drank so much that when asleep, or sometime just before bed, his nose began to bleed. With his blood so thin by booze, it couldn't coagulate, so he actually bled to death. The other possibilities are that he choked on his blood while passed out, the sheer volume of booze that he drank could have done him in, or it's also possible, even likely, that his new bride poisoned him for some unknown reason. Whether an accident or not, Attila's death sent the Hun world into a tailspin that they would be unable to pull out of, and within 20 years the Hun Empire would cease to exist. Rome, without a strongman-type leader, was not far behind. And in 476, Odoacer, after defeating Romulus Augustulus, declared himself the first king of Italy, and in so doing, ended the Western Roman Empire and ushered in the Middle Ages. Food for thought when you send in your theories. What would Aetius have done had the Visigoths refused refused to come to his aid? If Attila wins and defeats the combined forces of the Romans and Visigoths, what would his next move have been? Could a horse lord like Attila have maintained power over such a large area, and would he have wanted to? With Attila busy in Gaul, would the Eastern Roman Empire have been active, maybe even campaigning into Hun territory? On the other hand, say the Huns were totally destroyed. Do the Visigoths press their position and try to squeeze the Romans? And how could any of these events possibly have affected the impending Middle Ages? I know I am going to see this question a lot, so I will ask it even though I know what I believe the answer to be. Did the Huns have stirrups? All right, thanks for listening again. Be sure to send us your thoughts. Go to cauldronpodcast.com and click on the Your Theories page to submit. Check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Patreon. Just search Cauldron. Next time, we are going to the real Wakanda. We're going to fight a battle for freedom against tyranny, natives against colonists, Ethiopian versus Italians at Adwa in 1896. All right, thanks for listening. Have a good one now.